With that said, would you follow along with me there in Genesis 17, beginning in verse 1. It says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and many multiply and what may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you And to your offspring after you, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, but he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So my covenant shall be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house and brought And bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those brought bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you in these moments and we ask, Lord, we, 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 we seek you and we plead with you for your help this morning. We are in desperate need of you to intervene on our behalf. Lord, in these moments, help our attention and our affections and our thoughts, Lord, to be set on your word. 
Lord, remove distractions from this place. Would you reign supreme as we consider the truth here found in your scriptures? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable before you. And it's in your son's holy name I pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Uh, We come here to Genesis chapter 17 and in this story of Abraham that we've been following over the last several weeks. Uh, and, and the covenant has been a theme. God has promised Abraham this son, this nation that will come to him. And we've talked about how that points to the Messiah, the seed that was mentioned there in the garden that is to come. And here in chapter 17, this, this covenant is, is brought more clearly into the light. What is it about and, and who is it for and what, is, what are the circumstances surrounding it? And for the first time here in Scripture, we come to a point where God gives a command, he gives a charge to the nation of Israel. And so as we walk through the story of Israel, the nation of Israel, the, the narrative of redemption and the, and the character that Israel is, in that story, over time, God begins to reveal more and more of his law, his expectation to the people. And so we see that in Moses and the law that's given to Moses and how they are to live before the Lord and how they are to worship the Lord. But here, for the very first time, a sign is given to them that they are expected to obey as God's people living under this covenant, as his covenant people. So there's a few things here that we need to address before we jump into the text. First of all, right away we see that 13 years has passed since last week in in chapter 16, the incident between Sarai and Hagar. So at the end of chapter 16, the writer and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit tells us that Abraham was 86 years old. But now we find that he's 99 years old and still at this point he does not have his own son. More time has has passed, more waiting is necessary in the life of Abraham. Also in the story of Abraham, this is the fourth time that God comes and speaks to Abraham. And we'll address the things that he says to him here. Uh, But something else that's important that we won't really touch on any more later on, but we need to touch on for just a moment, is finally here their names are changed. So I have been trying so hard over the past several weeks to refer to them as Abram and Sarai, and I cannot tell you how hard that has been for me. And so I'm rejoicing this morning that we finally get to address them in the progression of the story as Abraham and Sarah. And so when God changes the names of people in Scripture, we see this is a a change of their status or the circumstances surrounding them. And so these names will forever serve as reminders of God's pledge, the promise that is made to them here in this chapter. The last kind of introductory comment I want to make here for us to notice is Abram's humble response. Twice he falls on his face when the word of the Lord comes to him. May we this morning as we sit under the word of the Lord respond and and approach it with this type of reverent humility and awe. But here's what I want us to do today. I want us to consider just a broad understanding of what is happening here in Genesis 17. Honestly, we could spend several weeks just unpacking so many important things that come from here. But I want us to just see in a very broad sense what is happening here in regards to the covenant. And then I want us to go to the New Testament and see how we understand chapter 17 through the lens of the New Testament. And then I want us to close by applying it to our lives. So let's first just consider chapter 17 in a broad sense today. What do do we see here? Well, first, 
God makes it clear in Genesis 17 who the covenant is between. This is a covenant that is between God and man. The sovereign creator of the universe has condescended. He has come near to this particular man, Abraham, and he has made a covenant with him. Notice how God addresses himself there in verse 1. He comes to Abram and he says to him, I am God Almighty. This is a name that you're probably familiar with if you're a student of the word. This is El Shaddai, God Almighty. We know God is Yahweh so far in the book of Genesis. And throughout the story of the Bible, God reveals more of his names to us. But here he introduces, he comes to Abram with this name, God Almighty. And we are reminded in this name that it is God alone who is able to keep the covenant. You remember back to chapter 15 when the carcasses are laid in this pathway that it was God himself who passed through the carcasses, taking the burden of the covenant completely upon himself. But in this name, God Almighty, we also see that he alone is the one who can establish such a covenant. If he does not condescend, if he does not come near and and make this covenant possible for Abraham, Abraham has no hope. He has no purpose. If God does not come near to us and intervene on our behalf, we are nothing. He comes near and he establishes this covenant with Abraham. This man who would be the father of a multitude of nations. So the covenant isn't just for Abraham, but it is for the the descendants who will come from him. So it's between God and man, this nation of Israel. Look there in verse 7. It says that he, at the very end, to be a God to you and to your offspring after you. This is a personal God, the God of Israel. There at the end of verse 8, it says, I will be their God. This type of language is used throughout the Old Testament in speaking to the people of God. They are a chosen people, a chosen race for God himself. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is the God of Israel. This is a humbling reality to Abraham and all of his descendants. This should not have stirred up in them a sense of arrogance and pride, but rather this is humbling that the sovereign creator God of the universe would call us his own. He is our God. More specifics here of who this, the, the, the people are who are involved in this covenant. We are first introduced here, finally, to the son and his name. His name is to be Isaac. And so the covenant promise is going to come not from Ishmael, as we addressed last week, but it will come from the son who comes from Sarah herself, whose name will be Isaac. And so there in in verses 15 through 21, Abraham, in his response to this, considers this, and he says, Lord, why can't it just come from Ishmael? And God says to him, no, it will come from Sarah, your wife. She will have a son, and you will name him Isaac. And so it won't come from Ishmael, although God will bless Ishmael. And we, again, are reminded that God blesses the nations through Abraham and the seed that is to come from him. But the covenant hinges on Isaac. You rightfully have read this before and considered this before when Abraham gets word of this in verse 17 it says he falls on his face but then it says he laughs 
at the prospect of this. Now, some will read into this and say, well, this is a sign of a lack of faith. I don't think that that's what we see here. I think this is the natural response of an old man when God says, you are going to have a child. Much like Hagar's response back in chapter 16 when she looked on contempt toward Sarah, just more of a natural response. Here he laughs because he he says to God, Lord, I am 100 years old and my wife is 90 years old. Is a child going to come from us? And God assures him that that will be the case. One other thing that we see here in this progression of Abraham, Isaac, we finally see here in plain words the importance of Sarah. We've talked about Sarah and how she is a critical part of the promise that the son would come from her. And and we've, we've seen how the text implies that. But here, finally, in plain, simple words, we see that. So look at verse 16. God says, I will bless Sarah. I will give you a son by her. Verse 19, God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Then in verse 21, God said, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So we see this God who is great and mighty and powerful, El Shaddai, coming near and making this promise with this particular family who would grow into a nation. The second thing that we need to see here in Genesis 17 is this, is that God makes it clear what the covenant is about. So more details are given to us here about the covenant. So three things here that are very specific. We see here a specific offspring. We see here a specific land. And we see here for the first time in the story, in regards to the covenant, a specific amount of time. Now, in regards to the offspring, we've already addressed Isaac, that this nation will come from Isaac and not Ishmael. But look there at verses 4, 5, and 6. God says to Abraham that he will be the father of a multitude of nations. And that is what the name Abraham means, a father of a multitude. And so if you consider the fact that he is the father of Ishmael and Isaac, we see these nations coming from Abraham. And so it mentions their kings in verse 6. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. So in verses 4, 5, and 6, we see this broad, this broad sense of the nations that will come from him. But there in verses 7 and 8, we see here this word offspring in the singular. There is one in particular who God will establish this covenant again, a covenant with. Again, it's Isaac. But we think here in this this language of kings and this one particular offspring, we look then to the New Testament, the Messiah who is to come, as we'll see here in a moment. So Abram will be the father of nations and kings. But there will be this particular nation that will come from him, and they will be marked by a sign, which we'll get to here in a moment, which is circumcision. Notice, too, here the importance of the land. So we see a specific offspring, but we also see a specific land there in verse 8. He says, I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. 
The land of Canaan, the promised land, will be an important character in the story of redemption, in the story of Israel. And Canaan has already been an important part of the story here in the story of Abraham. All the way back in chapter 12, God told him to leave the country of his father and go to the land that I will show you, which is the land Canaan. And you know how the people of God will come and go from the promised land. This nation is marked by a land. This is important for the story of the Old Testament, this particular land that God promises them. Just another note here, at the end of chapter 15, God mentioned there the land of promise after he establishes the covenant and he gives specifics of where the land will be from the river of Egypt and you can read there in verses 18, 19, 20, and 21 about that. But there is this land that is specific to the promise. A few weeks ago, one of you asked me, why, pastor, did God pick this specific land? Which I think is a great question, a fair question. Really, we cannot know in God's sovereignty why he chose Canaan and he didn't choose Texas or anywhere else. We, we cannot know this. Scripture doesn't tell us. But what we do see is that this land is crucial to God's sovereign plan of redemption. The, the Messiah will come from the land of Canaan. He will be raised and reared in the land of Canaan. The, the prophecy of the Old Testament points to him coming to the land of Canaan, being born in Bethlehem. He will die outside the walls of Jerusalem and resurrect there, and he will return again. And when we look at end times theology, it is crucial there. The land, again, this land is a primary character in the story of redemption. And so as we read through the Old Testament, we see Canaan playing this type of role in how God is revealing himself to Israel and to the nations at large. But when we come to the New Covenant, there's no longer a limitation placed on a people. And so we have to consider here, when God says, I'm going to establish for myself a nation and kings will come from them, that land is crucial to that. In order to be a nation and in order to be a people like this in this day, they had to have land that they would possess. But when we come to the new covenant, again, the church is not bound by borders. The church is represented by every nation, tribe, and tongue. And one day we will gather around the throne and there will be people represented from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So we see a specific offspring we see a specific land but we also see here again as i mentioned earlier a specific amount of time how long is this covenant for you see the word everlasting several times in the text there in verse 7 throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant in verse 8 for an everlasting covenant verse 13 be in your flesh an everlasting covenant and so over and over again, we see this idea of the covenant being everlasting. The prospect of the covenant has eternal implications. There is a king, there is a seed, there is one who will come from Isaac, who will establish his throne forever, namely Christ. The third and final thing I want us to consider here is this, that God makes it clear how the covenant will work. Man is responsible to the covenant, namely the, the descendants of Abram and Isaac and Jacob are responsible to the covenant. Go back to verse 1. 
God comes to Abraham. He says, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. And he gives him two commands. He says to him there, walk before me and be blameless. There's an expectation in the covenant of obedience and walking according to the Lord's ways. Look at verse 9. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. And it's not just for Abraham, but he goes on to say, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. And then again in verse 10, he reiterates it. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. There's an expectation of obedience and a living according to God's ways, obeying his commands for the people of God according to the covenant. And this manifests itself primarily here and, 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 and firstly here in chapter 17 of Genesis through the sign, the seal of circumcision. And so God tells him there that this is the sign. You see it in verse 11. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So we see here a reminder to Abraham and all of his descendants to live loyal to the covenant. They have been marked by God. They are his. Circumcision will come to play an important role in the story of redemption as well. But what does Abraham do at the very end of the passage? He obeys the Lord. There in verses 23 through 27, what does he do? He has his entire household, himself included, come and they are circumcised there. And this rite of circumcision was to be done on the eighth day and the people of God would do that throughout their history. And so as we consider these things, as the covenant is made more clear to us here in Genesis 17, as the nation of Israel would have read these words in Genesis 17, they would have been, been reminded of this. If you are my covenant people, you will keep my commandments. You will be obedient and walk before me. So, what do we do then with circumcision and this covenant as New Testament people. I don't think there's anyone here who is a Jew. If you're a Messianic Jew, and I don't know that, please come find me afterwards. I'd love to know that about you, but I'm pretty sure we're a room made up of Gentiles. And we don't live in the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament. So what do we do with Genesis chapter 17 in light of that fact? So here's what I want us to do. I want us to spend the rest of our time in Romans. So turn with me to the book of Romans. Now, we're going to go through this quickly and read through this quickly. If you're not great at Bible drill, maybe jot down the references and read them later or just listen well. If you're good at flipping here, you should be able to find these things. We're going to stay in the book of Romans. And so you should be able to keep up here. But here's what I want us to see, how Paul addresses circumcision and how it relates to us in the New Testament through the lens of Romans. So six things here as we close. Now, when the pastor gets halfway through his sermon, he says six more points. You're kind of nervous. We're going to go through these pretty quickly, okay? So stay with me. This is really important. The first thing is this. All of humanity is bound by the law. God reveals himself specifically to the nation of Israel. He gives his law to them, but all of humanity falls under the law of God. So we begin in Romans chapter 2, verse 12. Romans chapter 2, verse 12. It says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. 
And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, God, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ. Also look at verse 25 there in chapter 2. It says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And so even for the Gentiles, it says there, the law of God is written on their hearts. That's why earlier in chapter 1 of Romans, he says that, that they are without excuse. All of us, Jews and Gentiles alike, are bound to the law of God. Whether you have it in your hands or you have it written on your heart, we are bound to keep God's law. And so because of this, the natural progression then is the second point. All of humanity falls short of the expectation that is set for us by God's law. We move on then to Romans chapter 3, verse 9. It says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have all already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Jump down to verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so famously there in verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all of humanity falls under the, the, the burden of the law, and all of us fall short of the expectation that's set by the law. But then again, the natural progression is this, is that righteousness comes by faith. Righteousness does not come by the law, just as we just sang about. It comes by what? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So we continue there in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. It says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Now, I want us to go to Romans chapter 4. This is the longest passage that we're going to read here, so hang with me. This is a beautiful exposition here in Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 25, of what we just read in Genesis 17. So stay with me here. Romans chapter 4, verse 9. It says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So we've already talked about this in the, in the story of Genesis. Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. Verse 10. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Great question. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. 
The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And so the faith of Abraham comes at the beginning of the story, if you remember in Hebrews 11 that we looked at last week, it came, it, was, it manifested itself there at the very beginning when God said, leave the country of your father and go to the land that I will show you. Circumcision comes after he's justified by his faith as a sign of the covenant. So let's continue in verse 13 of Romans 4. It says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the hearings of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Does that sound familiar? We just read that in Genesis 17. It goes on to say in in verse 17, In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Verse 18, In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. No offense to anyone here who's a hundred years old today. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And so when he laughs there, the writer here tells us it's not because of a lack of faith, but just at the prospect of having a child at old age to a woman who had been barren for decades. Verse 20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But hear this, friends, the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The faith of Abraham looking forward to a Messiah to come is the same faith that we possess today in this Messiah who has been raised from the dead. Jesus, the Lord of all, who has come to deliver us from our trespasses and raise us for our justification. So righteousness does not come by keeping the law, but comes by faith alone. The fourth thing that we see here in Romans, then, is that true circumcision is a matter of the heart. Real quick, let's go back to Romans chapter 2, just two verses here, verse 28 and 29. Romans 2, verse 28 says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so just as we we read there about Abraham, what he possesses in in this righteousness that he has was not because of circumcision, 
His righteousness came by faith. His heart had been changed, and so therefore he was circumcised. And if we think this type of language or understanding is limited to the Old Testament, listen to what Jeremiah said of circumcision in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4 says, Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your what? Hearts. It is not a matter of outward appearance, dear friends. It's a matter of has your heart been changed by the power of the gospel through faith? Now, unless we think that this is a, a call to go on sinning so that grace may increase, as Paul says there in Romans chapter 6, he says in verse 2, by no means, hear this, obedience, the fifth thing that we see here in Romans is this, obedience is still the expectation of the new covenant. Lest we think that grace means we can just do whatever we want, no, the call is still to obedience. Back in Romans chapter 2, verse 6, he says, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And then later in verse 13 that we read already, he says, It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. If you possess true saving faith this morning, you will walk in the ways of your master. We'll talk about that here in a moment. The final thing then is this. Christ is the confirmation of the promise given to Abraham. Turn with me to the end of Romans, last verse that we're going to read here. Romans chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. Sorry, two verses. Give me some grace. I'm going to read a bonus verse here for you. And then we'll be done with Romans. Romans 15, verses 8 and 9. Listen to this. Christ is the confirmation of the promise given to Abraham. There in verse 8 it says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Christ is the fulfillment of everything we just read about in Genesis 17. Verse 9, it goes on to say, And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So all of humanity is bound by the law. All of humanity falls short of the law. Righteousness comes by faith, not by the law. True circumcision is a matter of the heart. Obedience is still the expectation of the new covenant, and Christ is the confirmation of the promise given to Abraham. What do we do with this? How do we apply this to our lives today? I'm going to close with this. First, works will not save you. We live in a culture where many of you come out of a Catholic background, a religious system that teaches that works are a part of salvation. And for some of you, you struggle with this. Maybe you have come here this morning and at some level you think because you are here, you are somehow adding to your salvation. Because you sang the songs or you read the word or you've prayed that somehow that is obtaining favor before a holy and righteous God. Just as the physical act of circumcision that was void of faith was useless, so religion and religious activity void of faith is for nothing. 
And so there's this connection between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament. And some could even make an argument that the Lord's Supper is, is a continuation of that sign in the Old Covenant. Baptism, Lord's Supper, anything that you do that is void of faith is for nothing. There's nothing you can do to save yourself from your sins. No amount of good works no amount of scripture memorization or Sunday school participation or raising of hands, none of those things can save you. It is only by faith. Only faith in the Son is what can save. We didn't read this. I wanted to. But there in Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives a list of all of the Jewish things that qualify him to be the best of the best. He starts there by saying, I was circumcised on the eighth day. He says, I was the Jew among Jews. I was the best of the best. And then what does he go on to say there in Philippians chapter 3? He says, I count those things as rubbish, as trash, as garbage compared to knowing Christ. If you do not know Jesus this morning by faith, if you've not put your trust and faith in him completely and repented of your sins and you are trying to do this in and of yourselves, dear friend, please look to Christ today. Look to Jesus alone. Believe in him alone. His blood alone is what can save. But finally, for those of us who possess true saving faith this morning, we are called to walk in obedience Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so I go back to Genesis chapter 17. There at the very beginning, the, the command that was given to Abraham at the very beginning of ch chapter 17 is the same command that is given to us today who, who possess this true saving faith. God said to him there in verse 1, walk before me and be blameless. There is an expectation that God's people are striving to walk in obedience to their master. The weight of what God says to Abraham there and to us is this, that we would place ourselves completely under the exclusive supervision and guidance and protection of God, that he is our master. We are slaves to him. That we do not listen to the, the, the voices around us, but we commit ourselves to his ways alone when it says there in verse one walk before me the picture here is that of a shepherd whose sheep are walking in front of him and he is he is behind them and he is calling out commands to them and the sheep hear his voice and they obey his commands and they stay on the path we are to be people who listen to the voice of the shepherd who submit to his words. And as we walk through this life, we are guided by his voice saying, here is who you are to be before me. Walk before me and be blameless. Taking our direction only from him and being completely devoted to him without reservation. So three questions then. Are you trying to please God this morning by your works? Dear one, repent and believe the gospel. Look to Jesus alone to save you. And do you have saving faith this morning? Then the th if the answer to that question is yes, then the final question is, are you living with God as your supreme master? Are you walking, listening to the voice of your master, 
Are you allowing him to lead you and guide you in this life? May we each submit to him alone as the good shepherd, as the Lord, God Almighty, ruler, master of our lives. May we walk in obedience before him all of our days. Let's pray.